Chinese saucers have invaded our planet. Washington, London, Paris, Moscow are key targets. The whole world is under attack. Can it survive? George Lucas had this idea for Indiana Jones, and it was basically, hey, let's do aliens. And I said, George, I don't want to do aliens. I've done two alien movies at the time. I had done E.T. and Close Encounters to the Third Kind, not in that order, but I had done both of those pictures. And I didn't want to do any more aliens. That was it. But George insisted, and he didn't. He said, this will be like a B-movie. It'll be like those 1950s B-movies, Earth versus Flying Saucers, and all those exploitation movies uh, that were really about government paranoia, Cold War fears and things like that, and Hollywood turned them into invaders from Mars. It was the idea of taking the genre from the 1930s serials, action-adventure serials, to the B science fiction movies of the 50s, in the early 50s. And I resisted, I resisted, I resisted, but I also never thought I'd be making Indiana Jones 4. So I, I, I kind of, I, I guess I kind of humored George by going along with it, thinking, well, I'll never wind up directing this movie, though. I'll wind up producing it with George and somebody else. We'll get some young kid to come in and do this, you know. Students at Marshall College everywhere, welcome to Blast Points number 293. This is Jason. And this is Gabe. It's our final indie year episode. The indie year finale. Which is crazy. I felt like Saga Year last year, maybe because we did two Saga Year episodes at the end of the year. I felt like Saga Year was going to go on forever. Maybe that was just because we were doing it in 2020, too. Yeah. Well, I was actually just talking about that last night with someone that it's like 2020 and 2021 were both crazy, but in different ways. And somehow 2020 went super slow, but 2021 made up for that slowness and was like, Felt like we're only six months into the year and we're already almost halfway through December. <laughs> well, maybe we should be happy that Lucasfilm's giving us a break and Indy, we don't have to think about Indy 5 until 2023. We can give it a rest, focus on Boba. Yeah, so maybe I'm going a little ahead of myself too because we all know Indy year is going to come back. And when Indy 5 comes out, it's going to be Indy something. Indy year part two. <laughs> we can do an Independence Day special. Which, as we get into here, there's weirdly an Independence Day thing going on with our topic for the the final episode of Indie Year, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And if you've been listening to the show, there's probably no surprise to you that we're both big fans of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but not everybody is. To say the least. And it is a movie that really does not get the love. There's all kinds of reasons why, which we're going to be going into. But before we get into all of that, let's talk about 
our personal histories with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Gabe, May 2008, the build-up to the movie, when the movie came out, where was your hype level going into it? What was your first reaction after seeing Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Well, I'll be honest, my initial reaction was I wasn't sure what I thought of the movie. And thinking back, it was a really weird time for me because my daughter, my first child, was born in 2007. So I don't even know if I even was aware of the buildup for Crystal Skull because I was like not sleeping and we were in like tiny baby mode that year. I almost want to say going, I think my wife and I went to see Crystal Skull and that might have been the first movie we even went to in like over a year. Maybe in a way it was good because I wasn't like super focused on the hype, but I remember walking out the first time and being like, I'm not sure what I think of this because it wasn't what I expected. I think it part of it was not realizing that Indy's in that same category as a Star Wars movie where you can't really just watch it once because you've watched the other movies so many times that, you know, you kind of need to see it like two or three times to just get so you, before you can actually get an honest opinion because you kind of have to just watch it once just so your brain knows what to expect. No, yeah, that's very true. And I think I went to go see it maybe like seven or eight times in the theater in the summer of 2008. Because it was, yeah, it was very similar where the first time I watched it, I knew 15 minutes into it, it was like, oh, this is a little different. (laughs) But I was along for the ride and it's weird twists and turns. I I just clearly remember by the time I got to the jungle chase, I was 100% into whatever this movie wanted to do. And it's a lot of people's sticking point where they point to it as one of the worst parts of the movie. But honestly, Mutt swinging through the vines in the jungle, at that part in the theater, I actually said like, yes! (laughs) (laughs) Like out loud. I was so happy with that moment. Because that that's just my level of ridiculousness that I like. And I was so into the jungle chase. And I still am. It's still one of my favorite Indiana Jones set pieces from all the films. I love the, the John Williams score in it. I love how ridiculous it is. I love just that over-the-top Indiana Jones action that is in the jungle chase. And yeah, Mutt swinging through the vines is the, the little cherry on top of the cupcake. Well, that whole chase is interesting, too, because... You know, you have your your issues with modern Spielberg's action scenes and his floaty camera and all that stuff. And Kritzel Skull, that scene in particular is interesting because it's like it's that Spielberg trying to come out, but he knows it's an indie movie and he has to dial it back. And it kind of makes it an interesting mix between maybe a more modern Spielberg. The camera's going crazy with the more restrained motions of the older stuff and i think it does i don't know it works really well it's funny it's a goofier action scene but yeah i love that whole section as well and i think that is another one of the things people don't think about with crystal skull being more of a companion to temple of doom than what we saw in last crusade and it is more the completely over the top ridiculous slapstick stylized style of Indiana Jones as opposed to the more grounded Raiders last crusade style. It's weird because I was thinking about that going into getting ready for this episode. It is like much more of a direct relative of temple of doom in just a lot of ways, but it's also like we talked about in our last crusade episode carrying over the more emotion-based, family-based kind of things that started in that movie, it brings back Marion and kind of picks up later on Indy and Marion's relationship. So it's more directly tied to Raiders in that way. It's like we talked about in our Temple of Doom and Last Crusade episodes, how they have such distinct and different flavors to them while still kind of being rooted in this 1930s adventure serial kind of format. And when they mash them all together in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and inject 
like the 1950s alien attack B movie ESP communism scare kind of thing that George Lucas wanted to do so badly in Crystal Skull. It makes for this weird combination. It's like a weird smoothie with a lot of ingredients that pretty much tastes pretty good together, but you would never think like adding them. Like I'm going to put peanut butter and asparagus and some vanilla protein in this smoothie. And you're like, is that going to taste good? <laughs> well, it is though. It is kind of like the thing is that you, why you have to give it, you know, at least a second chance because if you've only ever watched it once is because it is, it's a flavor you're not accustomed to. And it doesn't mean it's a bad flavor. It's just, it's like when you accidentally grab the wrong glass and you like you think you're getting coke and you drink a glass of root beer and for a second you're like what the hell am i tasting because <laughs> your because your brain is just not ready for it but yeah once you kind of acclimate yourself and realize what they're trying to do it is really kind of brilliant in a way that it is like maybe visually and stylistically a sequel to temple of doom but emotionally yeah like you said it brings back marion so it ties back to raiders but then it's really a reversal of the father-son story from last crusade and so it is it's like the ultimate sequel to the previous three movies at the same time and i have always believed that the biggest cloud hanging over king of the crystal skull still to this day i mean we're gonna get into it it has its funky spots but the biggest thing is just the anticipation that people had. And it's very, very similar to the Star Wars prequels, as we've been talking about for the past like 300 almost episodes of Blast Points, almost all the time, that there's no way that Indiana Jones 4 could have met the expectations of people. And it's a different kind of expectation than Star Wars even, because Star Wars we always knew there would probably be the story of young Anakin and Obi-Wan and how Anakin fell to the dark side and the birth of Luke and Leia and all the things we knew eventually we would probably see on screen one day. Indiana Jones, after Last Crusade, everyone just assumed that was it. And so the expectations were, well, this is going to be not only maybe a movie as good as Rares of the Lost Ark or people's memories of Temple of Doom or Last Crusade or whatever indie movie they grew up with or whatever feelings they have associated with Indiana Jones as being part of their childhood and all of that, it's not going to do that. No movie ever does that. Well, and it's even worse, I think, than Star Wars 2 if you think of even back with the original three movies – Temple of Doom came out and so many people didn't like it because it was different than Raiders. And then Last Crusade comes out, which is more like Raiders. And there were people who were like, well, this is just like Raiders. From the beginning, Raiders was such a, I guess, similar to the original Star Wars, such a thing that any sequel is always going to disappoint people. And then, like you said, you add in, you know, all these almost 20 years of waiting and all the starts and stops of them. Are they going to make it? Are they not going to make it? Like, yeah, there's no way that there's not going to be people who are disappointed because it's not what they have been imagining for almost 20 years or what they remember, whether it's what they remember is actually the truth or not. Very much like Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very, very much. Well, what's fun is you had your, your brand new baby in the year leading up to King of the Crystal Skull we hadn't had our child yet, and I was just hanging out, and I had a lot of time on my hands, obviously, during that period of time. And in the anticipation to King of the Crystal Skull, I started a king. This is going to very much date me. Uh, started a Kingdom of the Crystal Skull fan MySpace page, which. I started it right when production was actually getting going, and I was updating it every single day. And Lucasfilm actually sent me, at one period of time, a bunch of Indiana Jones stuff, thanking me for my MySpace page. Things were going great. <laughs> I was really happy doing it. In a way, I think that the Indiana Jones MySpace page was almost the precursor to Blast Points. <laughs> think so well and thinking back to that was the only 
way I knew what was going on with that because I would, you know, every once in a while I would call you and you would tell me what's going on from all your daily research <laughs> and give and give me like the, the the rough outline of okay, well this is what's happened so far. I'd be like, how's your baby? Great. Well, let me tell you about the filming of Indiana Jones four. Right. 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 Things were going great, and then it was uh, a few weeks before the release of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and I posted something that I shouldn't have. I didn't. I just copied it. I found it on the message boards, the Raven message boards from the the Raider dot net. It was pretty much the plot outline of the entire movie that I didn't know was actually true or not. It seemed legit, but I posted it. It got picked up by like some big movie sites at the time and shared around and everyone linked back to my little MySpace page. I went to work. I came home from work and my MySpace page was gone. (laughs) And I had several stern emails sent to me (laughs) saying, you got real close to being in big trouble here. <laughs> I was terrified. You learned your you learned your lesson. I I think I did. So, <laughs> but it was fun. So, yeah, my anticipation for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was kind of off the charts at that period of time. But again, I was having fun. I was having a good time. I wasn't doing anything else. It was pre-baby times. I was having fun. Well, and it's like again, even more so than Star Wars. Indiana Jones movies don't come out very often. So if you want to get hyped up, that's the time to do it. Because who knows, at the time, that was going to be the probably the last one again. And even if it wasn't, it's still been, what are we going to be at? Over 10 years between four and five. I thought there was never going to be another Star Wars movie. So I was like, what am I going to do with myself? <laughs> I guess this is what I'm going to do. So. Right, that's true. You're right, though. That was in the, when we were... We were comfortable with Star Wars being gone and moving on with our lives. It was a different time. (laughs) (laughs) Our future looked so different then. skull was stolen from a mythical lost city. Whoever returns the skull will be given control over its power. What just happened? Don't touch anything. I think I'd cover my ears if I were you. Put your hands down. You're embarrassing us. Indiana Jones, rated PG-13. Okay, so yeah, Last Crusade ended things pretty nicely for the Indiana Jones story. Indy and Marcus and Sala and Henry rode off into the sunset. The Raiders March is playing. Indiana Jones movies are done. Had a great run. There was young Indy. But still, no one could let, also very much like Star Wars, no one could let Indiana Jones go. Like every time Harrison Ford would be out promoting presumed innocent or something. So when are you going to make another Indiana Jones movie? Spielberg's off doing Jurassic Park, Schindler's List. Well, this is all well and good, but what about another Indiana Jones movie? Right. Everybody wants to know when Indiana Jones is coming back. Because like Star Wars, people love these movies. They love, love these movies. They can't get enough. People can't stop, won't stop. I completely understand. So they're filming, what, the episode of Young Indiana Jones, the Chicago 1920 episode. It's the episode with, like, Harrison Ford coming back as old-er, old-ish Indy, kind of introducing the episode, which was a really big deal at the time. And Lucas is on the set that day. And while they're doing that, they're like having so much fun. Lucas dreams up this idea of, okay, well, if we were to make an Indiana Jones movie and make it age appropriate for Harrison Ford, 
it would be set in the 1950s. And he dreams up this idea of, yeah, it being like 1950s B-movies, very much like the the adventure serials, and having it be aliens. <laughs> Which I will defend that to my dying day, that I think that was a clever idea. And it's not as weird as people think if you go back to the original idea of Indiana Jones and even going back to Temple of Doom with the idea of every movie being different. And before it was a continuous story about fathers and sons and that sort of thing, it was like, and if you look at the novels and the comics and all the, and the games, like things get crazy. And are aliens any crazier than religious artifacts that summon ghosts and things like they're they're really kind of not it's all like x-files stuff so yeah he calls up spielberg's like indiana jones 4 let's do it spielberg's like yes calls it harrison ford yes let's do it it's about aliens (laughs) (laughs) and they weren't so keen on the idea so what lucas does a kind of outline in 1993 which is just outrageous to think about. And again, before we go any further, we got to, as always, give a shout out to the late, great Jonathan Rinsler's Making of Indiana Jones book. We wouldn't have been able to do Indie Year without his book, just like his Making of the Star Wars Trilogy books. We wouldn't be able to do half the episodes we've done without those books. And so, yeah, just another shout out to late, great Jonathan Rinsler and his incredible books. And just a reminder, too, if you missed out on that book when it came out and we're just like, Oh, I'll get it later. Don't, don't wait, get it. It's that, it's that good. It really is. It really is. It kind of got overshadowed by some of the Star Wars trilogy books, but yeah, his making of Indiana Jones book is the definitive and the only really comprehensive look at the making of these movies, including kingdom of the crystal skull. So yeah, 1993 Lucas does an outline, which it's kind of shocking thinking 93 were not even in like prequel era, right? It was like the famous video of George Lucas sitting down in his little place with his pencils and his yellow lined paper. That's like 94 where he's like, all I need is an idea and all that stuff. Before all that, he comes up with this outline that has a fake town. It has Indy hiding in a refrigerator to shield himself from a nuclear blast. It's got a rocket sled. It's got aliens. It's got ESP. It's got Cold War Russian guys. Indy gets married at the end. It's got a CIA double agent. It's got a Russian woman. Crystal Skull, the basics of it, I'd say even beyond the basics of it, was just sitting in Lucas's head. For all this time. So then Lucas hires this guy, Jeb Stewart, who was pretty hot at the time, having written Die Hard and The Fugitive, hires him to do a draft that ended up being called Indiana Jones and the Saucer Men from Mars, which is such an awesome title. (laughs) In this script, Indiana Jones has a relationship with an archaeologist named Molly. Marion isn't in it at all. There was, like, a real possibility around here that there could have been, like, this mid-90s, like, around the time of, like, the special editions coming out, Indiana Jones movie, which is just absolutely insane to think about. It really is, and it's, like, hard to imagine what a, like, mid-90s Indiana Jones would even be. Because I always just, I don't know, I feel like the mid-90s was, like, a weird time for movies. Because it's like before the Star Wars prequels and the Matrix kind of kicked everything up and the Lord of the Rings movies, which was kind of like the big new renaissance of crazy sci-fi action movies that, yeah, I'm just really curious what that would have been. I feel like for the longest time, everything was still kind of in the shadow of Batman, where Batman was like the big blockbuster of 1989 and kind of everything in the years kind of following that for a while was kind of copying what Batman did. You know, you think of like Dick Tracy, the super hype buildup of unbelievable proportions that ba- that Batman just did so well and no one else could kind of do as good as that. Well, yeah, because thinking about the movie that 
we're going to bring up in a second of how much that movie seemed like a big deal because we hadn't had a movie like that for a while. And I remember, I think probably saying it to you after it came out, like it's been so long since there's been a movie like this. Let's get right to it. The biggest, one of the biggest influences on the development of Indiana Jones four was independence day. Amazingly. (laughs) And then when we actually began to get close to a story involving extraterrestrials, Independence Day came out, which was a smash. And I said to George, I called George up after I saw the movie. I said, hey, this movie's really a lot of fun. It's brilliantly directed by Roland Emmerich. It's just got everything you want in a movie. It's got humor and it's got drama. It's got things you've never seen before. It's got a mothership bigger than my mothership in Close Encounters hovering over a city in broad daylight. I said, come on, we can't do aliens, especially since Roland has done his alien picture. I then sort of thought, well, maybe I could do a kind of, you know, uh, there's a whole genre of ancient civilizations developed by aliens. And I said, well, maybe I can move it into that, to, you know, without flying saucers and see if that would work. Which we went to go see Independence Day together in the theater. And do you, I remember clear as about we were so pumped up after Independence Day. We went to Meyer to try and get figures of the aliens because we saw them like a couple weeks before we're like oh there's 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 what the alien looks like from independence day that's cool and we're like let's go get those figures now yeah like we were literally on fire after that movie racing around town because it was like what when was the last time there was just this huge outer space movie with with aliens and explosions and spaceships and lasers and it was just like you know it was a big deal and Thinking about an Indiana Jones movie coming out maybe before that or around that time, yeah, it's hard to believe what it would even be. Yeah, so he calls up Lucas and says, we can't do aliens. And this whole interaction is incredible. So then George came to me one day, I'll never forget this conversation, said, you know, you might be right about this alien thing. Maybe we shouldn't do aliens. There's too much of that stuff around. I said, George, I love you. That's the best news you've ever given me. He said, yeah, they're not aliens. They're, they're kind of extra-dimensional. I said, what? He said, ever hear a th- string theory about different dimensions? I said, yeah. He said, okay, these are interdimensional beings. They're not extraterrestrials. They're interdimensional. So I said, fine. Fine. And what are they going to look like? George said, look like aliens, but we'll call them interdimensional. But at that point, I thought that was kind of interesting. It kind of deepened the subject matter a little bit. Interdimensional beings. (laughs) They look like aliens, but they're not. They're interdimensional beings because they're from the Star Wars dimension. It's true. Clone Wars, there's a crystal skull in the Trandoshan trophy room. From those awesome Wookiee Trandoshan episodes of Clone Wars, thus clarifying that the Crystal Skull aliens are from the Star Wars dimension. Well, or whatever dimension they're from, they travel to our dimension and the Star Wars dimension. They, they may have originated from their own dimension, but yes, it's all the same thing. The Lucasfilm universe. That's why I think Spalco actually is Governor Price from Rebels. Spalco got sucked up into the Star Wars universe, and she naturally joined the Empire, she's just like, I'm Governor Price now. It makes perfect sense. They've never contradicted that in anything. I believe it. You believe it. It must be true. Celebration Orlando. I walked up to some random person cosplaying as Governor Price, told her my theory. I think she thought I was insane. She was just looking at me and be like, okay, if that's what you want to believe, crazy person. (laughs) You think you dressed up as Governor Price, but I only see Spalco, so what's the difference? Mac is somewhere in the Star Wars universe. I think Mac could show up in Book of Boba Fett, episode one. Okay, so anyways, moving on. The whole alien thing puts the movie on hold for a while until it kind of starts to bubble back up around the time, weirdly, of Attack of the Clones. Lucas kind of gets it going again and brings in Frank Darabont to kind of revive this whole Indiana Jones 4 thing. In May of 2003, 
Frank Darabont hands in his screenplay titled Indiana Jones and the City of Gods. Now, the whole thing around this Frank Darabont version of Indy 4 has become kind of legendary. I remember when the the script leaked online. Of course, I read it. I printed it. I saved it to, to my hard drive. It was be shortly before Crystal Skull was released. It's weirdly similar to Crystal Skull in a lot of ways, but also very, very different. It's got great parts, and it's got absolutely be very happy this wasn't the version that came out parts. I, I definitely prefer Crystal Skull to this. It was a whole weird thing when the script leaked online. WikiLeaks posted it, and people thought that Darabont himself posted it like out of spite. It almost reminds me very much of the whole Star Wars Duel of the Fates episode nine debacle from a couple years ago, where everyone comparing that to what ended up on screen and like this whole kind of jaded filmmaker using the internet to like get revenge or something. I don't know what was going on. But I don't know, Gabe, you you recently like revisited the the Darabont screenplay. What 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 are your thoughts on it? It was more similar than I thought it would be for how much people were hyping it up that it was way better. Yeah, there's some things that he gets absolutely right. Marion, the way she's written, sounds very similar to like Rares of the Lost Ark Marion. But then also there's scenes where like Indy gets drunk and he's wandering around Marshall College and stuff. And there's a joke about whatever happened to Willie Scott and she married some famous Hollywood director. And it's like, oh, one and brought Nazis back, which is kind of, you know, we've made, we've had two movies already with Nazis. This is 10 years, 15 years later. It makes sense that they wanted to move away from that, even though they might be back in five, (laughs) (laughs) but it's been long enough now that it's, it's charming to bring them back. But, and people want to see Indiana Jones punching Nazis again, really bad. So that's fine. But at the time when for you know Indy Four, I think it made sense to move away from that. Again, kind of like how Temple of Doom did. It was something else. It was kind of riffing on the '50s B movies thing in like a different way than Crystal Skull ended up doing. I mean, there's literally like giant ants attacking. Like there's the ant scene that's in Crystal Skull, but it, they're giant ants. It's like them. The very ending of the Darabont screenplay always kind of sticks with me where it's like, did I want that or do I not want that? With (laughs) Henry Jones, Sean Connery singing Frank Sinatra, Fly Me to the Moon at Indy and Marion's wedding. Like on one hand, I would have loved to have seen that. But on the other hand, I'm like, boy, I'm kind of glad we didn't get that. (laughs) I I think I would have been okay with that. That's the part I'm sad we didn't get. It's, it's for me. It's like getting too much of what you want. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it tastes it tastes good going down, and then you get a tummy ache. I'm totally fine with the frame picture of Henry Jones on the desk in Crystal Skull. And every time I watch that, I kick myself. Why don't I have that very same picture framed on every desk and countertop in my house? Yeah. I really don't know why you don't. Every morning I go and I pick up that picture and I say, it's been a hard year. It's never too late. But this Darabont screenplay, it exists. He puts it out there. He submits it, what, to Spielberg and Lucas. Spielberg loves it, supposedly. Lucas, not so into it. And then I feel like for years, like when Frank Darabont would be like promoting The Mist or whatever he was doing... He loved to talk about his Indiana Jones 4 experience. It's, it's, it's a very simple story. There's not really any like, great controversy or you know, any, any, anything to, you know, to talk about. Um, it's like when you're a screenwriter, there are times when things go well and other times when things don't. We've all heard the stories and you know, all of us have, have had professional disappointments along these lines but uh, basically what it really boils down to is I, I worked with uh, Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. who is I revere what a gentleman what a great man he is uh, worked with him uh, pr- to provide uh, some material on Indiana Jones I wrote mm-hmm. a couple of drafts for him he really dug it George didn't and they're you know they're right. 
they're really partners in this, you know, in, in this effort, in the Indiana Jones effort. So but both of them have to be on board. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. I have tremendous faith in, in Stephen. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I revere him. And I got no argument with George, really. There's no blood feud or bitterness or anything like that, you know. All right. As, as they say in Reservoir Dogs, some guys are lucky and some guys ain't. The same is true with projects. You know, you, you, you become part of a certain process, you know, for a while, and, and, and sometimes that, that results in, in stuff on screen that you can lay claim to, and sometimes it doesn't. So it is, I'll quote another movie, it is the business we have chosen, as they say in The Godfather, you know? Yeah, and another quote about the process from Darabont, too, is he says, when he found out George Lucas didn't like the script, he confronted him directly. And he says, I told him he was crazy. I said, you have a fantastic script. I think you're insane, George. You can say things like that to George, and he doesn't even blink. He's one of the most stubborn men I know. <laughs> Duh. Well, and that kind of syncs up with uh, some quotes from Spielberg about working with Lucas as well. Spielberg says, George being George, he is tenacious, if not downright relentless. And he never blinked. Spielberg says, he says, I blinked to the point where George thought there was something wrong with my right eye. But George said, absolutely. And down the line, it's got to be psychic phenomenon and this craze about flying saucers since it takes place in the 50s. Throughout the process, there's a lot of George Lucas not blinking and everyone else finally relenting because he is so focused on what he thinks is a good idea. It's a very, we've heard that song so many times. <laughs> yeah. So then it's like the, the prequels are kind of wrapping up. Uh, famously, Spielberg does some of the previs with Revenge of the Sith. I remember when that was kind of happening and my mind naturally went to, oh, that's just because they're hyping up for Indy 4. They bring in kind of around 2004 or so Jeff Nathanson, who worked with Spielberg on Catch Me If You Can and The Terminal to do a draft, and eventually they settle on David Kep to do his version of the screenplay. That's the one that makes it to the screen. I believe at this time, Mutt is entered into the picture. Through this whole process, they were working with Joe Donaldson, who kind of took over for the great Debbie Fine, even though, like we said, Indy 4 had been happening since 93, so originally when they were first starting development on all of this, Debbie Fine was involved in doing research. Yeah, Joe Donaldson says, each time George and Steven were considering the project, we would know because there would be a flurry of research requests. We'd do the research, write the reports, and then hear nothing for a couple of years. (laughs) Even at Lucasfilm, they were feeling the same way as as we were. They would hear about it, and then it would go away, and they would hear about it. Everyone was wondering, when is this going to happen? This is finally May 2008. It comes out. It's Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Let's talk about, for each of us, the stuff that works, some of the stuff that kind of doesn't work. I don't For me, there's the good certainly outweighs the things that are iffy. I, the only things I'm iffy with were... In my opinion, still, Oxley should have been Abner Ravenwood. I know that, like, you know, Marion said Abner's dead. Abner could have faked his death to hide from the Nazis. Marion could have honestly believed Abner was dead. And then after World War II ended, Abner could have came out and say, I was hiding from the Nazis. I had to do it. I want to be a part of your life again, Marion. And if Abner raised Mutt the way Oxley did, I think that would have been really cool. That would have brought the whole family thing around and kind of the falling out that Indy and Abner had about Marion would have kind of been a cool way to settle all that. No, I agree. And I even feel like the first couple times I watched it, getting confused, thinking Oxley was Abner. (laughs) Like, wait, isn't that... Marion's dad, and that's like, no, this is his. That was Abner. So, because it feels like that character should be Abner, and that also, I think, potentially would have resolved some of the the issues, if you want to say, with the end of this one too. Because I feel like that for me, like the only part that's kind of strange, comparing it to the other movies too, is the very end end of the movie uh, with the temple and everything. Kind of doesn't really tie up the story from the beginning of the movie, the way the other movies do, especially the way 
Last Crusade does so well with the kind of the climax of the action really being the climax of the Indy and his father story with it ultimately being about him saving his father and that there isn't that same sort of emotional payoff at the end of Crystal Skull other than the wedding, which is great, but that's kind of almost like a tacked on thing in a way. It's not like they get married in the temple with the aliens, like the aliens aren't officiating the ceremony. It doesn't all kind of go together. Maybe they should have did that. That would have been great. Yeah. But then what you say, like if, if Oxley was Abner, it's kind of like you potentially have, you know, the climax of the movie being Indy reconciling with Abner and then deciding to marry Marion, you know, it all kind of, pays off at the end and, and Oxley just being this whole new character that you don't really understand who he is until the end of the movie because you're too busy watching the movie to kind of put all the pieces together. But it's also one of the things too, like we talked about with last crusade until last crusade, that wasn't really an Indiana Jones thing. And that's a where this kind of maybe gets more into where this is kind of like temple of doom where it's just an adventure for Indy. But it, but because it kind of brings in Marion and Mutt and the family stuff from Last Crusade, it makes it ending like a standalone adventure feel a little strange and maybe hollow compared to what you felt with the climax of Last Crusade. And I love the scene after like the UFO leaves when they're up there. I, I like that little quick scene. With Indy saying, somewhere your grandfather's is laughing right now and all that. It's a very small moment. But yeah, you're totally right where that could have been pushed a little bit further. It had room to do that. Maybe it needed Henry Jones singing Frank Sinatra at the wedding. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that was the, the missing link, yeah. I always think, too, that Mac has no purpose in the movie whatsoever that you could take Mac completely out of the movie and it wouldn't affect the movie at all. And then in the end, Mac just gets sucked up to the other dimension and he like winks at Indy and he says, I'll be all right. And I remember even the first time I saw it in the theater and I was loving it. I was just like, I don't care. Yeah, he is definitely, it seems like he's there because they wanted to keep the double agent thing. And because he's the double agent, yeah, you never really know how to feel about him because you like him and then you don't like him and then you like him and then you don't like him. And then ultimately, yeah, you don't care. <laughs> but let's talk about some of the stuff that works. Let's cause there's a lot, there's a lot of gold in this. I will keep bringing it up. Temple of doom is completely ludicrous and outrageous. And this carries on that style of Indiana Jones being in a refrigerator that gets nuked is no more crazy than jumping out of an airplane into an inflatable raft. And then skiing down a mountain and riding a rocket sled or swinging with monkeys is no more crazy than reaching your hand into someone's chest and pulling out their beating heart. Like, <laughs> there's nothing out of the ordinary for an Indiana Jones movie in this film. I love Mutt. I don't care who knows it. I think Mutt is great. It's unfortunate that the, the real world, the actor, is kind of an idiot. And he's not going to be in Indiana Jones 5 because I would love to see what a 30-year-old mutt in 1969 would be up to. But the mutt we have in King of the Crystal Skull is really entertaining. I think he's a good foil for Indiana Jones. No, it's true. And it's, I think I feel bad for people who just can't accept mutt because, yeah, I, believe, I feel like all the mutt scenes are some of the best scenes in the movie. The whole introduction through the motorcycle chase at Marshall College is like probably one of the best parts of the movie. The whole twist on the Henry Jones Sr. and Indy relationship and even the motorcycle chase in Last Crusade kind of being flipped around in this with Mutt being Mutt's motorcycle and Indy riding on the back and basically Harrison Ford playing Sean Connery in that scene is just, it's wonderful. And it's such a nice kind of tribute to Lucas, too, to have this, like, rock and roll 50s greaser guy in the movie. As much as having James Bond be Indy's dad, having George Lucas be Indy's son, I think is, is perfect. Which, there's a great story, right, from the set with Mutt. I, I love Mutt when he gets nervous combing his hair. And it, it, that really kind of goes back to Lucas. Yeah, there's an incredible quote 
from Rinsler's book here. It says, Mutt had two main props. One was a switchblade and his comb. We were with George Lucas, and he said, let me show you what a 1950s comb looks like. And he pulled one out of his back pocket. So Mutt's comb etiquette came from George. This, why isn't there footage of George Lucas pulling this little black comb out of his back pocket and just combing <laughs> that quaff? Like a loose hair Lucas. And he's like, oh, let me get that right back into place. You know? Yeah, it's like now we know the secret to Lucas's hair. It's his 1950s comb that has been in his back pocket for 60 years at this point. <laughs> has it been the same comb? Probably. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's plastic. It never, go, it never goes away. Probably keep, he probably keeps it in the like Barbasol jar at night to keep it clean. <laughs> Whatever that stuff is. Why isn't there the, the George Lucas comb? Is that sold at the Lucasfilm gift shop? Somebody help us out. Like they started selling the plaid shirts that say Lucasfilm. Now what we need is just a black comb. Maybe the Lucas Museum. They'll have like the machines that museum has that like press out those plastic statues or like the all the Chicago museums I know have those. So it'll be like you go and you put a dollar in the machine and it like injects plastic into the mold of a George Lucas 50s comb. Please, please. <laughs> it began with Mr. Lucas. What happened to Darth Vader's grandchildren? I love Spalco. I think Kate Blanchett does an amazing job. I love the John Williams score in this movie. I think the action pieces are incredible. I like the bizarreness of the ending. I like the whole look of the movie. I think the look of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull has been talked about more than any the look of any movies, maybe besides the prequels. Yeah, and it's totally like, I get why it looks like it looks, because they were in this spot of trying to make it look like the old movies, but it's now the mid-2000s, and things just look different, and they're trying to make it look old, but they're trying to make it look new. And, you know, I feel like... The Peter Jackson King Kong had come out just a few years before and had that very saturated, lush, almost animated look to the to its jungles. And I'm sure there was some in, influence with that. And it was just much like the Star Wars prequels, like you're making a movie 20 years later. All movies look different than they did in the 70s now. Like, And even if you're tr- trying to make it look exactly like the 70s, you really can't because the technology has improved so much that things just look clearer and sharper. And this is how it is. And it was the first indie movie that Spielberg made with digital previs. I think that's one of the things that blew my mind when the, like the DVDs came out too, just how much the movie existed in the animatic form was like, you watch the animatic of the warehouse scene from the beginning of the movie. And it's literally, they knew exactly what they were making. It wasn't like, they filmed the movie and they got in the editing room and they're like, Oh, I don't know. This isn't what we expected. It literally, it was like shot for shot, exactly what the animatic was. And I think very much like something we encountered later with the star Wars sequels, where the, in the buildup to came with the crystal skull, there was like a lot of the kind of real sets, practical effects. We're doing this, the old school way we're filming in a real desert, you know, (laughs) but then the movie comes out and, I, one of the, the common complaints is that it all looked like it was filmed on a sound stage. But again, it's like we talked about, I think that's people forgetting that Temple of Doom existed and just thinking about, you know, like the Cairo scenes in Rares of Lost Ark or the tank chase in The Last Crusade, like these very much shot outside in sunlight scenes. But you go back and watch Temple of Doom and the campfire scene with all the animals like that's on a soundstage in the UK somewhere. Right. And once they're in the temple, it's, there's no like natural lighting in there. It's very theatrical. It's very almost like a stage production kind of very obviously lit. Like it's not, yeah, it's not a natural looking movie. And that's just as much what Indiana Jones is as the, them shooting in a real jungle in Hawaii where you can barely see anything because they're just there. 
is equally as much Indiana Jones. And if you go back and watch the making of stuff too, they they were filming in a real jungle. So it was there was, you know, digital effects enhancing it, but more so than a lot of movies, there were real sets. And it kind of goes to show you too that whether you have real sets or fake sets too, it's kind of the stylistic look of the film has a bigger impact than whether you actually shot on film or you shot digital or you're really in a jungle because you can really be in a real set and just the way it's lit and shot, it can look fake. I think we were talking about that with the, the, the beginning scene on the base when you first meet Spelko and Indy comes out of the trunk. We can't tell if that's a real base or if it was shot on a set and it may be both or, but we don't know. It's just the way that whole scene is kind of put together. You can't really tell. Well, just all of this too kind of goes back to that like we we said, the thing that kind of plagues Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is just the expectation of what people thought it should be versus just enjoying it for what it is of this outrageous 1950s B-movie-inspired adventure film. Just take it for what it is and have a good time. And Honestly, if you haven't watched the the new 4K version of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, like watch when that came out, watching it again felt like I was watching it for the first time. It looks so good. And it does seem like they did kind of tone down a little bit of the over the topness of the visuals of the set, maybe the saturation and the brightness of the movie. And it is a little more in line with the other three while still kind of being its own thing. But yeah, it looks really good on the on the Blu-ray set. Well, and we can't forget, because I know it's on both of our list of favorites, and it's one of the parts that you're either you're either all in or you never want to see it again. Swinging with the monkeys and the monkey with the greaser haircut looking at Mutt is is the high point of the movie for me. <laughs> Like I said, in the theater, I audibly said out loud, yes! So, and I still, I love the Williams score in that scene. I love that it goes there. It's an absolutely ridiculous moment. And I'm a big fan of absolutely ridiculous moments in movies. And we can't forget when Indy rolls out of the refrigerator that the groundhog is waiting for him, too. So it's kind of a father-son moment they both have throughout the movie. It's moments that just scream Lucas to me. It's, it's, yeah. the, it's the touch of the Lucas. So, which that kind of brings us into wrapping up kind of indie year and looking to the future with Indiana Jones Five. There's going to be a new Indiana Jones movie without Steven Spielberg directly involved, without George Lucas directly involved. We don't know what's happened behind the scenes and what influence they've had with James Mangold. But how does everything we've talked about here with King of the Crystal Skull, how do you think that can lead into Indy 5? I mean, everybody has seen the photographs from the set and like videos of filming. It looks like they're filming a lot on location. In your opinion, is bringing in new blood creatively in James Mangold good for Indiana Jones, like a new perspective, a new way of doing things. My opinion, yes. I mean, there's the interview in the making of King of the Crystal Skull where Spielberg never thought he was going to actually direct four. He thought he would produce it and they would bring in, he says, some young kid to direct it. And James Mangold's not really some young kid, but compared to Almost 80-year-old Lucas and Spielberg at this point. He is, relatively speaking, a young kid. Yeah, I think it's good, but it is it is one of those things that I really wonder how it's going to be. I mean, it, Harrison Ford's still there. That automatically makes it 33% a classic Indiana Jones movie. But there is something about the Lucas-Spielberg relationship that makes the indie movies the indie movies and kind of taking the two of them out of the equation really makes me really have no idea in a way of what we're going to get because it is kind of now like with the star Wars sequels, right? It's a movie made by someone who was a fan and inspired by the original movies. 
that can be great, but it's definitely going to be different. When I think the this new era of Star Wars has been, you know, like a perfect warm up for something even kind of more sacred as, as kind of like Indiana Jones, because I think the running theme through all the episodes of Indie Year that Indiana Jones has really been born out of this very cool and fascinating friendship of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and the way the two of them kind of work together again, like even like with the, the get back documentary on Disney plus watching the very unique and fascinating relationship between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Part of my brain also goes, that's like Spielberg and Lucas, you know, like making Indiana Jones. It's a partnership. It's like based in this long, long standing friendship. So Indy five is like a George Harrison solo album. Basically, it's all all things shall pass. But hopefully, <laughs> yeah, because because George Harrison Ford is still in it. There's a little bit. <laughs> we we live in you know the age of you know the book of Boba Fett coming out. It's going to be great. We know it's going to be great, and the spirit of what Lucas started is still in there. At least at least for us. Talk to other people, mm-hmm. but Indy Five is going to have a tough road ahead of it because there's going to be the people being like, well, it's not Spielberg. It's not Lucas. I don't care. But then there also is going to be people being like, well, I hated kingdom of the crystal skull and whatever. So good or something at the end of the day, I think it's going to be a great story. And I think it's going to be fun. All the things from the set we've seen, just everything looks awesome. Phoebe Waller bridge, I think is going to be a great addition to the whole thing. Mads Mikkelsen, Everything just seems perfect. And again, put your expectations and your wild dreams of what it's going to be aside and enjoy it for what it is. But in a way, I'm glad King of the Crystal Skull kind of came out and kind of already burst that balloon. You know, it's true because at this point, I think the bar for an Indiana Jones movie for most people is pretty much, it's pretty low and not in a negative way. It's just kind of, there's, no, I don't think there's the anticipation there was for Crystal Skull. And it's like, and I think that bodes well for Indy 5 because people can kind of just appreciate it for what it is. And it's not this huge thing of, oh my God, I can't believe Indiana Jones is back. Even though it's been over 10 years and, oh my God, I can't believe Indiana Jones is back. <laughs> <laughs> right. But much like the, I guess, the Star Wars sequels, we've, we've been here before where it, it was gone and now it's back. So it's kind of, you know, a new movie is a gift, whatever it is, because we never would have thought that, that we would be where we are right now and, and waiting for another Indiana Jones movie. And it's probably a really good thing that they decided to take another year or two if they felt like they needed it. Only good things usually come from from that sort of thing instead of just rushing to get it out. Well, the the four indie movies that we have so far are a real testament, again, to the, that Spielberg-Lucas friendship. That's where this whole thing began, on a, on a beach in Hawaii, with them making sandcastles. It was created from the aftermath and the, the amazing joy of the success of Star Wars. It's all forever connected to Star Wars. Indiana Jones will go on forever, I feel like. There's going to be something past Indy 5. I know it. I mean, starting with Indy 5, it's all Disney, and they're not going to let it go. Well, and there's a, another great quote here in the Rinser book from the Crystal Skull Times of uh, from Spielberg saying, Working with George is still the same. We will argue, we still compromise, and we still deal with each other like the brothers that we are. That's what it's all about, and I hope to see both of them hopefully at the premiere of Indy 5, whenever that happens. But most importantly, through all of this, we can't do an indie year episode about a movie without talking about Dr. Fantasy, Frank Marshall. You'd think maybe it didn't happen with King of the Crystal Skull, but it did, but maybe not when you would think it would happen. Yes, so this time it was while the movie was still being talked about early just before the well, i guess the earliest draft in 94 it was George Lucas's 50th birthday so instead of being Amanda's birthday it was George's this time and they had a big party Frank Marshall is there 
and Robin Williams was there as the, I don't know, MC for the party. And Frank Marshall and Robin Williams got together with a surprise. They brought out the cake for George and Frank Marshall just spontaneously. What does he say? I came screaming out of the audience and crashed into George's cake. George loved it. It was so good. It all worked, except that most people thought that I'd had too much to drink and had totally lost my mind. I heard all these stories afterward that I'd ruined the whole evening, so I stopped doing that. He was just off on the side of the party, listening to the Bee Gees to get pumped up. You know he was. Kathleen Kennedy was next to him, being like, just do it, Frank. Do it. Do it. But he does say they did have an extra cake in the back this time, so everyone got their cake. Lucas got out his 50s comb out of his back pocket, straightened out that pump. Yeah, will will Dr. Fantasy make an appearance on the set of Indy 5? I don't know. Will we ever know? Maybe not. Someone please fill us in. Let us know. the traditions of Indiana Jones are back again. I wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel here. I wasn't trying to make this movie bigger or better. I wanted this to be a blood relative to the other three uh, Raiders pictures. And I just think that um, we created Indiana Jones, but it belongs to the world. And now we're their custodians. And our job really is to serve up a huge helping of not only what Indiana Jones means to older people who grew up with it, but we need to reintroduce the character to those who didn't. And so those those are my responsibilities. Enough of his jungle. It's Indiana Jones, a large size action figure. That boulder's coming in fast. He's new from Tenor's Raiders of the Lost Ark collection. Stay low, Indiana. They're right behind you. Use your whip. Whoa, I'm flipping. Oh, oh. A fix it. Get me out of here. Now. Indiana Jones, a large size action figure from Raiders of the Lost Ark collection. New from Tenor. single week apple podcast reviews when you're done listening to this go over there write something nice it helps people find the show when they're looking up star wars podcasts indiana jones podcast maybe i don't know but most importantly we love reading those reviews and you know we haven't had one we haven't had a new one in like a long time so break this kind of itunes reviews doldrums we're in and write a little something cool on there all we want for christmas is itunes reviews under the tree it's true. I wrote a letter to Santa Claus, and that's all I want. Maybe Santa will write us an iTunes review. <laughs> that would be an honor and a gift. But don't forget, after that, check out our website, blastpointspodcast.com, and make sure you are following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you're in our super chill group. It's the place to be. And if you want to support the show in a different way, we got the Blast Points Army on Patreon. Where coming up, we're going to have our final installment of our look back at the classic episode one documentary, The Beginning. We're going to be talking about the final 16 minutes in the beginning. Lots of hot stuff in there. And in just a matter of weeks, we are going to have episodes on the Patreon for every single episode of the book of Boba Fett. I'm terrified and excited at the same time. But that wraps up 293. It also wraps up Indie Year 2021. We got to give huge shout outs to 
all the people that helped us do Indie Year. We had so many cool episodes with really great guests. Tom Vaguely talking about Raiders on Record. That was so good. Savannah talking about Indiana Jones and the Disney parks. She did so much incredible research. That was so much fun. Well, and I got to say, it's not Indie Year related, but if you haven't seen her Zam Wessel costume, it is incredible. Wesselmania in full effect, yeah. Look that up. It is amazing. Amy Rakow talking about the women of Indiana Jones. Another awesome episode that we... That was her episode, 100%. And it was so good to do. And, of course, Dr. David West Reynolds talking about the archaeology of Indiana Jones and his outrageous lifestyle he lives. <laughs> He's pretty much Indiana Jones. It's It's been a real treat doing this, doing something a little different here in 2021. And shout out to you, Gabe, your incredible theme music from every episode. Just killing it with that theme music. Thank you. And I think we need to thank everyone for listening to the episodes, too, because at the beginning of the year, we were like, are people going to be okay with us taking a week off to talk about Indiana Jones? And it seems like everyone was. So this was a good experiment that worked out great. And I think we're safe to say next year, in just a matter of weeks now also, our theme episode, once a month special thing for 2022 talking about the 20-year anniversary of this little movie called Attack of the Clones, the AOTC. So you're going to get 12 AOTC-focused episodes coming your way in 2022, which we are very excited about. We hope you'll truly deeply love it, (laughs) as much as we do. But yeah, we are taking the next couple weeks off to say goodbye to our families and prepare our lives for the impact of the Book of Boba Fett. So the next new episode you're getting of Blast Points will be our incomprehensible blabbering about the very first episode of the Book of Boba Fett, which we're going to try and put out as close to the release of the episode on Disney Plus as possible. Yeah, we need a couple weeks to lay in the Bacta tanks, maybe go to some spas, get our bodies warmed up and ready for seven episodes of Book of Boba Fett. We think we're ready, but we know we're not. We're going to record the the Book of Boba episode the day that it comes out, and it's it's not going to make any sense. Just advance warning. We we may have to record it in a hot tub or bathtub full of ice. It's very, very true. I might have an ice cube in my mouth the whole time talking. No one will be able to understand anything. It's got to cool down. The episode might be really short because I'll be inside my refrigerator and there's only so much oxygen. Gabe, what did you think about the ending? (laughs) What? So look forward to that. And yeah, we will talk to everyone in a couple weeks. Bye bye, everybody. I, I, I think I said all things shall pass. I've got like Lord of the Rings brain. It's, I, it's the George Harrison Gandalf album. All things shall pass. <laughs> well, you know, George Harrison Gandalf. Similar in a lot of ways. They have, they have the same hat, so it kind of makes sense. Henry Jones, Junior.